underneath the apartheid movement because of her husband, Leo Lenang, who worked with Mandela and her son, did a documentary of 12 Disciples of Mandela, as I said before. And she is incredible. She's also been a professor at Bronx Community College, where she taught chemistry. And she has worked in the movement, the peace movement, the women's movement, politics, human rights, in every every fabric, every every area that you can imagine. And she went to uh, the school and said to me, oh, Joanne, uh, you got to go to this course with me. And I said, no. I said, Roberta's the one. And out of this came this incredible, incredible book. And I'm sure that you're going to enjoy it. I'm not going to say anything more about her. I think she's fabulous. She's a mother of two sons who are incredible, who, who exhibit at the Whitney and MoMA in their art and in their photography. And she has created two fabulous <laughs> So just her, her genetics, everything, has been moving. And it's now created this, I think, a wonderful book. I hope you will enjoy. And her sister, Laura, is here, her backup all the time, right here. My friend, Mercy. And her friend, Mercy, who's in from, not, in from Kenya. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> About 50 years ago. <laughs> Everyone for coming. So it's a wonderful, wonderful turnout. Uh, and it said they say it takes a village to raise a child, but we also say it takes a village to promote and write and get the word out about a book. And so Joanne and Roberta are certainly part of my village, an um, important part of my village. I think that uh, Roberta's book will be coming out next. I'll put the pressure on her. <laughs> I write good. I write trash. <laughs> Good trash, though. And of course, my sister Laura, my friend Mercy, as uh, Joanne said. So I'm not going to talk uh, too long because um, I could be a windbag, but not tonight. <laughs> so anyway, uh, my book is called Cold War and Love. And um, it is a biographical novel. In other words, it's based on the lives of my grandparents, Albert Johnson and Evelyn Johnson, who lived in the early 1900s. And uh, the, the genesis of this book is when my son, who is a filmmaker, Thomas Allen Harris, uh, so he went to interview my father before he died. And so he interviewed. Uh, so he interviewed him, and he asked me. I mean, he filmed him. And he asked me to do the interview, and the story was just so amazing. He told us all about his father, who fought in the Great War. So uh, I said, someday I have to write a book about that. Well, I think that was 20 years ago. But at any rate, I, I, it kept haunting me and haunting me. Write this book, and finally, my son Thomas. Um, had a uh, transcript of the whole interview and I read, I said, this is just amazing and inspirational and exciting. So uh, eventually I did write this book, which was released in uh, late August, the end of August this year. Okay. Um, my grandparents, Al and Evie, which we call them, uh, met on the Nightline Ferry. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Okay. 
the Nightline Ferry, which plied the waters of the Hudson from Albany to New York and back overnight. And so he said that uh, he was very, he was a waiter on the Nightline, and he was very impressed with my grandmother because she, when she, she and her sister ordered breakfast, she left him a 10 cents tip. <laughs> so at any rate, they, uh, they fell in love. He was nine years older than her, a self-educated man of the world who had been all over the world. She was a young, beautiful woman. And uh, she was raised in Brooklyn, Weeksville, Brooklyn. Yes. And, uh, and her father was a plumber, and he spoiled her. So she was pamper, a pampered uh, young woman. All right. Now, um, when we meet them uh, in the book, in Chapter 16... Um, they have only been married a few. They, they, they fell in love and got married, and they moved to Albany, New York, where he took a job as a coal stoker. Someone asked me why they had the term coal, a coal stoker, which was a very difficult job uh, at the New York State Capitol. Okay, so um, in Chapter 16... It, I sound like coal. <laughs> coal shoot. In chapter 16, they've only been married a few months, but they have taken in to live with them a boy who is Evie, Evie's nephew, had been, uh, her sister's son, who had been living in a foster home. When you read the book, you'll find out the why of it. Okay, so I'm going to read from chapter 16. And this is, each chapter has a different voice. Either Evie's or Al's is speaking. Okay, and this is Evie, Evie speaking. First Street was on the border of Arbor Hill. Remember, this is Albany now. A residential area where the streets were lined with elm and chestnut trees. Unlike Weeksville, where all the neighbors were colored, our neighbors in Arbor Hill were Irish, Dutch, Polish, and German. We were the only colored family on the block, and people barely spoke to us. I had been living in Arbor Hill for about two months when the woman next door greeted me as I was passing her house on my way downtown. Hello, miss, she called out in a German accent. Surprised, I looked up and spotted her on the porch. How was your mistress this morning? She asked. <laughs> My mistress? Yes, Mrs. Jones. You clean her house, don't you? No, she's my landlady. How dare this foreign woman assume I'm a maid? She doesn't even know me. You live there? She asked, pointing to Mrs. Jones's house. Yes. My husband and I live in the apartment upstairs. Oh, sorry, I thought you was her maid. But then again, I wondered why you dressed so smartly. <laughs> I'm Mrs. Johnson. Who might you be? I smiled wearily. I'm Mrs. Schmidt. Nice meeting you, Mrs. Schmidt. By the way, I'm looking for a maid, too. Let me know if you hear of one. <laughs> Mrs. Schmidt's mouth fell open, but she recovered quickly. I surely will. 
Without even saying goodbye, she rushed into her hallway and shut the door. Frankly, it was wishful thinking about hiring a maid. Al and I had to count every penny to make ends meet. Despite this, Al had generously bought a bed for James and allowed him to move in with us. We were just getting used to him being around the house. One morning in mid-November, I went downtown to shop for Christmas gifts, but everything was way too expensive. Christmas had always been a jolly time in Weeksville, and I was disappointed when Al declared that we couldn't afford to buy gifts that year. But it wouldn't have been Christmas without presents, so I took the household money and bought a yard of blue plaid flannel for a vest, a fine piece of burgundy silk for a cravette, and a few cotton remnants at the dry goods store. I would make the gifts myself. The next afternoon, I pulled out my sewing basket and got started. The blue vest would be for Al and the burgundy cravette for Father. I was sewing in the dining room when I heard the front door open. It was James returning from school. Hello, Auntie, he called from the hall. Hello, dear. Have a nice day at school? Y yes, very nice. When I looked up, he was standing at the dining room door. I beckoned him over and he sat down beside me on the sewing bench. Auntie, how long can I stay with you and Uncle? Dear, this is your home now. Is it? He flashed a bright smile. Are you happy living here? Yes, Auntie, I like it, and I really like my new school. My classmates and I play baseball nearly every day. Well, Uncle and I are delighted to have you. He looked up at me. Auntie, I wish you were my mother. Don't say that, James. Your mother loves you very much. Yes, Auntie. Now go and change your school clothes so you can wear them again tomorrow. I hope you didn't get them dirty. They're still clean, Auntie. By the by, the stoves are low on coal. Can you fetch some from the cellar? I'll remove the ashes and take them down too. That's a good boy. But first, change your clothes. I reached out and squeezed his shoulder. James is such a big help around the house. I hope he'll grow closer to his mother. I glanced at the wall clock. It was nearly four in the afternoon. I needed to hurry, so I ran into the bedroom and laid out my dress, petticoats, unmentionables, and shoes. After washing up, I slipped on my undergarments, buffed my nails, and rubbed a spot of cold cream into my face and hands. If I wasn't careful, my hands would become rough from housework, and that simply wouldn't do. <laughs> Next, I combed my hair, applied a little rouge, uh, uh, and dabbed lavender uh, toilet water behind my ears, and slipped on my dress. <coughs> Taking a lingering glance in the mirror, I decided I was ready to welcome my husband home. <laughs>
jacket and we all ate supper together in the kitchen. Then Al and I retired to the parlor and sat down in the gentlemen's and ladies armchairs that flanked the round lamp table while James went to finish his homework. My my Mrs. Johnson you certainly look ravishing tonight. <laughs> Do I really? Thank you dear. <laughs> His approval makes all my efforts worthwhile. How was your day today? He asked. Fine, I've been working on Christmas gifts. Now, Evie, we can't afford to give presents this year. We're just getting on our feet. Sweetheart, I'm only making a few things with the material I have in my hope chest. A pink and white flower dress for mother. Yellow and blue aprons for Jenny and Cousin Matty, and a silk cravat for Father. I didn't dare tell Al I'd spent most of the grocery money to buy fabric. <laughs> what about James? I'm knitting him a brown and white muffler set. Shouldn't we get him a toy? I saw a stereoscope viewer with baseball cards for 40 cents in the hobby shop. You know how he loves baseball. Anyway, I won't have any spare money till month's end. So we'll see about it then. Then I began to consider the folly of using grocery money to buy the fabric. Will we run out of food? I could go into the pin money Mother gave me, but I want to save that. I better talk to Al. Dear, can you leave me a dollar tomorrow morning? I have to pick up something. Did you go through the household money already? Yes. I crossed my fingers. No, but I still need a dollar or two. Al slowly withdrew two dollars from his beat-up wallet and said, Evie, we're on a tight budget. We still have to eat the rest of this month. And remember, there are three of us now. I pouted. Maybe I should have kept my job. He said, and who would cook and clean and take care of James? Sighing deeply, he stared at his open hands. Evie, I'm doing the best that I can. Oh, I know you are, dear. I went into the kitchen and added two dollars to the one already in the cookie jar, praying that the money would carry us till month's end, and hoping I would still be able to buy my favorite chocolate. When I returned to the parlor, Al was engrossed in the newspaper. Now and then he would pause and tell me about an article he was reading. Here's something about a new breakfast cereal, Grape Nuts. Some rascal called them gripe nuts and said they tasted like a bowl of hay. <laughs> he laughed out loud. We should really try some, dear. It's supposed to be healthy. No, thanks. 
I'll stick with eggs, bacon, and hot buttered biscuits. When Al finished the paper, I snuggled up on his lap. Encircled by his strong arms, I looked into his eyes. Sweetheart, it seems that something marvelous is being invented every day. New breakfast foods, horseless carriages, electricity, telephones, even flying machines. All these things are fine and dandy, Evie, and I welcome them. But what I really wish is that someone would find a way or even invent a machine to end the bigotry and prejudice against our people. But Al, it's the sunrise of the century, a time for peace, a time for prosperity, a time for progress. The world is changing. It's changing so fast that I think we must have a share in it. Lord knows it just has to get better for colored people in this country. He kissed my forehead. I hope so, Evie. I hope and pray so. That's the end of that reading. And then... I still have Eight years later, you want to take a break and then continue or just continue? <laughs> Eight years later, in, in 1917, Europe had been devastated by the Great War, World War I. And America decides in April 1917 to join the fray. Al enlists in the New York 15th Colored Regiment. He was 38 years old. Uh, in the hope of getting a better job when he returns, if he returns. So in chapter 39, uh, Al and his folk, what I'm going to read from Al and his fellow soldiers are traveling to the Western Front in France, where they expect, fully expect, to join the American expeditionary forces there, which is under the command of General Pershing. So this is Al's voice. <clears throat> we boarded a train and journeyed north. After we'd been traveling for several hours, I glanced out the window and witnessed a spectacle that shook me to the core. Vast fields of graves marked with white, small white crosses. I wondered about the poor souls resting there, men who had been alive, men who had cherished hopes and dreams, men who had fought for home and country, men who had loved and perhaps been loved. Would I end up in one of these cross-marked graves with green grass spouting overhead? <coughs> After a day-long journey, we disembarked from the train and began a 10-kilometer march to our destination, the Argonne, deep in France's Champagne province. Upon our arrival, I took in the new surroundings. Shell-scarred buildings, 
ravish meadows, the smell of smoke and gunpowder, the sound of bombs and rockets, and the faint glow of explosions in the darkening stars. French soldiers were loading horse-drawn wagons with food, supplies, and munitions, and servicing the big guns for battle. Warplanes were buzzing overhead. Here was France in the belly of the Great War. We marched to our dismal barracks, dropped our gear on the muddy floor, and amassed on the open field. Then Colonel Haywood, standing on a wooden platform, addressed the assemblage. Men of the 15th, the Army has renamed our unit. We are now the 369th Regiment and a part of the new 93rd Division. He paused as if to let it sink in, and a buzz of whispers reverberated through the ranks. What's wrong with our old names? I've never heard of no 93 Division. Man, this is crazy. An Army Division usually contains three or four regiments of 10 to 15,000 men. We with only 2,000 soldiers. Sir, where's the rest of the 93rd Division? A soldier shouted from the rear. The colonel called us to order again. Men, I know you've been anxious to reach the Western Front. Well, we finally made it. We're going to be a real combat unit. However, we won't be fighting as part of General Pershing's American Expeditionary Forces. We remained frozen as expressions of puzzlement crept on our faces. Colonel Haywood continued, The General has assigned all four regiments in the 93rd Division to the French Army. From this point, our regiment, the 369th, will be part of the 16th Division of the 8th Corps of the 4th French Army, commanded by General Henri Guru. The remaining three regiments in the 93rd will serve in other French Army units. Soldiers, get a good night's sleep. You start your field training early tomorrow morning. Astonished, I stumbled into my tent, trying to make sense of it all. For once my buddies were speechless as they looked at each other, shaking their heads in disbelief. After a few minutes, Eddie woke up What the hell's going on, Al? Have you ever heard of anything like this? I said, I don't know any more than you do. Are we still part of the American army? Lewis asked, his voice quivering. Sure, I responded. The general has loaned us to the French. Lyle Thomas snorted. Hmm, like you loan your stinky socks to a friend. Look, I said, we're confused and disgusted, but at least we're at the front. Let's see what the French army has in store for us. Cephas tightened his lips into a grimace. I hope they don't use us as cannon fodder. <laughs> a chorus of murmurs agreed. That makes no sense, I said. 
They need good fighting men, not dead ones. Exhausted, I stretched out on a bunk, wrapped myself in a blanket, and yawned. I'm off to sleep, and I suggest you do the same. The next morning, our regiment began the grueling preparation to become an effective combat unit. Our French training office welcomed us, explaining that the Germans outnumbered them and had pushed the French line back 60 kilometers. He also told us that General Pershing was delaying the deployment of the American forces, saying they weren't ready yet. Neither are we. I whispered to a soldier standing by. On the evening of our third day, I ran into Sergeant Ebenezer Green outside the mess tent. We had just finished a tasty supper of hearty French soup, crusty bread, and wine. How you doing, soldier? he asked. Besides being bushed, I'm not sure. We're in a foreign army, trying to learn a lifetime of information in three short weeks. And we can't even speak the language. I wonder if I can do it, Sarge. You ain't alone, Private. I'm struggling to learn all I need to know in the non-com officers training. He was a master sergeant. I was a lowly Private but it seemed as if we were in the same boat. We ambled over to a bombed out farmhouse and sat down on the low brick wall and I decided to confide in him. Sarge, my buddies and I feel demoralized and abandoned by the American army. It's not only you, Private. This whole development has shocked the regiment's offices even Colonel Haywood. As far as I know, we're the first American regiment to serve under a foreign flag. Sergeant Green rolled his eyes and looked around to see if anyone was near. I hear that Colonel Haywood complained to a French officer that the American general had put the black orphan in a basket and left it on the French army's doorstep. The story goes that the French officer replied, Welcome, little black baby. <laughs> Despite my misgivings, I had to laugh. Do you think we're here as shock troops? Listen, the French are giving us the best training they have, he said. In the short time they have, they're getting ready for a massive German spring offensive. So they need to hold the line, and they need us to hold our part of it. Your best protection, Private, is to learn everything they got to teach you. That way, you and your buddies have a better chance of staying alive. I've been watching you. You're a born leader. Whatever you do, the rest of your mates will follow. A leader? With no rank or direction? We stood up and shook hands. Good luck to you, Sarge. And to you too, soldier. He smiled, 
slightly and strode away. Yes, there were many ways of dying in this war to end all wars. And one of the most terrifying ones was by inhaling poisonous gas. I was more afraid of gas than explosive shells, even though we wore our, our, our gas masks around our necks. The Germans had a nasty trick of firing tear gas first, which burns your eyes and makes you want to take off your mask. Then they would fire the deadly ones, mustard gas, which blisters your skin and forms acid in your eyes and lungs, or phosgene, which makes you cough uncontrollably as your lungs fill with body fluids. With phosgene, they say, you'd be dead within 24 hours, or at least wish you were. After three weeks of intensive instruction, our training officer said that we were combat ready and would be assigned a five-kilometer sector to defend against the Germans. A few days later, General Henri Guru, commander of the 4th French Army, arrived at the camp, accompanied by General Ocelli and General Legalis. As the artillery rumbled and the sky blazed with red and orange, General Guru inspected the French troops and decorated several of them for bravery. After that, the general approached the 369th Regiment. I had heard a lot about the great, a great deal about the legendary general from French soldiers who claimed he had the heart of a lion. So when I saw him up close, a bearded, frail, one-armed man, I was shocked. Then I looked into his eyes, eyes that seemed to flash with fire and I was drawn to him. The general limped up and down, reviewing our lines, and I imagine that many of us were hoping we would also earn a medal one day. Just then, an astonishing thing happened. The three generals, led by Guru, marched to the 369th Regiment's flag bearer and doffing their hats, respectfully bow, bowed to the American flag. At that moment, I had no idea what the future held for us, but I knew we had passed our first test. Any questions? <laughs> Battery power runs out.
Lifetime retirement income from TIAA doesn't. No! No! Guaranteed monthly income for life. Any other questions? Huh? Years. <laughs> many years. Off and off. definition of year? The time taken by a planet to make one year around the sun. No, it's it's stuck. It's stuck. There's a lot happening here in a quarter acre block. Quarter blocks are always difficult, but he seems to solve that. Where does this imagination and skill come from? I do want to turn it off. What was Well, I have two questions on the floor, I think, right? One was uh, um, Joanne's question, right? Let, let's get Carol settled. What I, what did you ask? You asked, well, how, what did I admire about them? Yes, what inspired you? What inspired me, all right. What inspired me about my grandfather that was his willingness to risk his life in a war that had killed millions and millions of Europeans. And it promised to also kill uh, many Americans too, many soldiers that were there. But he did this because, uh, as I said, he was a coal stoker. And he knew that he could not uh, continue to do that job because he was already 38. At the when the war when the war when America joined the war, he knew that he couldn't do that job more than another few years, you know, because he was getting older and it was he was shoveling tons of coal every day. So he said, he told my grandmother that I'm going to join the army, and she said, "You must be crazy." <laughs> and so he says, "If I if I join the army, they have to give me a better job when I return." Which didn't, they don't have to give you anything. But anyway, that's what he believed. Or, if I don't come back, you have insurance. <laughs> anyway, so he was determined to provide for his wife and children, even if he had to risk his life. And then the other dream that he had, which was the main, one of the major dreams, is that he was taken out of school. And this is not in the, really, that part of it is not in the book. That's another book. But anyway. He was taken out of school when he was nine, was he was finished fifth grade, and he always wanted to have an education. So he educated himself, but the fact he didn't have the formal education that held him back in a lot of ways. And so, um, so he wanted. He said, "If I ever have a son, which was my father, he's going to. I want him to get a college education. And even when he was in the trenches with the bombs and." poison gas and all of that, he still held that dream to be true. And that was that was a major thing that he wanted that my father to get a college education. Wow. And thank you very much. And we have been graced by the presence of our senator. Okay. <laughs> and thank you.
Okay. Henry Johnson from Albany was the first American to get the highest honor, uh, French honor, particle. Particle. Yes. He was the first American to get that, black or white. Oh yes. wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah. He saved something like many lives. I always learn something. Always. <laughs> it was an incredible book. Thank now you. I have a the most amazing. Um, thing that you learned throughout your, your um, experience. Louder. Oh. What was her amazing, you know, the first or several of the amazing things that she discovered with her family <coughs> through her research? Well, one of them is uh, faith of my father. He was seven years old when uh, my grandfather went to war and he prayed and prayed that he come back safely. And he did come back safely. I mean, he was a little he was shell shocked, but I mean, other than that. And my father kept that faith his whole life. Yeah, that was just one. Could you please? Where can people get this online? Uh, this is on uh, Amazon.com, and also Book Baby store. Book Baby. Those are the two ones, right? Yeah. And then I have a uh, website. Which is www.tulipbud.tulip. I'm sorry, tulipbudpress.com. Spell that. T U L I P B U D Press P R E S S. dot com. Right. <laughs> I think you said at the beginning that uh -huh. your son interviewed your his grandfather. My son, yeah, interviewed you, his grandfather, which yes. is your father. That's right. What was his was it was it his work that was also part of your book, the research and was his book he, the manuscripts his, in that interview mm -hmm. was the whole basis of this book. Interesting, because his father always shared that he was. Uh, uh, what do you call a man that uh, like not like men, but you know, uh, always thought a man was a big, big or whatever. Uh, macho, macho man. Okay, my grandfather's a macho man, so he always he didn't tell his wife any of these things, but he, or his daughters, which are my aunt, but he would tell my father, who was the oldest boy, all about the war, and he would make jokes and all of these kinds of things. You know what happened. You know, and so my father always remembered all of these things, and he he want he would tell us all of these things as we were growing up. But you you ignored it. Ah, oh, we don't want to hear all that stuff. You know, we're kids. You know, and so then when you hear them all together in an interview, you see the tapestry of it, and it was just so amazing. Any other questions, comments? Yes. Is it, is it, would you be open to coming out to meet different groups? Oh, yes, yes. Uh-huh, I certainly like, am. You know, I'm, I'm African. I'm Native African. Okay. I'm from Nigeria. Okay. And I grew up in a household uh -huh. with a grandmother. Uh-hu
happy memories for me. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So will you uh, be open to uh-huh. coming to perhaps in February for Black History uh-huh. Month? Oh yes, absolutely. Come and meet yeah. with the Yonkers chapter of the Westchester Black Women's Political Court. Oh yes, absolutely. I'd love to. your books. Right. We all have a story to tell. And in you January twentieth, you know the literary tea, the American Women of African Heritage. She's also going to present her book there uh, with three other authors. So if you have an opportunity, they will. That's that's uh, January twentieth. It's twentieth. It's at the J Estate in uh, in Harrison.